Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This field is relatively new. It's really growing exponentially, so it's a really exciting time, I think, to be a bioengineer because we're really at the frontier of this technology. But that also means that we still have those challenges to circumvent. Kia ora, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Cannon TNAE. Now, bioengineering is a massive field that looks at different medical or biological challenges and tries to find applied solutions for them. And today we have two stories for you from this area of science. Later, Katie Gossett meets the team behind the design of a new simplified tracheostomy kit, which has the potential to save lives around the world by streamlining in-the-field operations. But first... Dr. J.D. Cabral is excited about the potential and future of bioengineering, but in particular, the area that she is focused on, 3D bioprinting. So my name is J.D. Cabral. I'm a senior research fellow in the chemistry department here at Otago University, and I've been attracted to the bioengineering program here at Otago and using the 3D bioprinter to make regenerative constructs. So what's a regenerative construct? Well, we'll get to that. But suffice to say that while you've probably heard of the fun stuff that 3D printers can make... We have 3D printed dresses that look amazing. Dresses we couldn't design any other way. And of the harm that 3D printers can do. Spanish police have dismantled an illegal workshop that was using 3D printers to make guns. This is the story of how 3D printers can be used to heal and rebuild you. Now, if you've come across a 3D printer before, I'm guessing it was similar to my experience. A small boxed piece of equipment where plastic is fed in and melted and then laid down layer by layer to form the 3D shape as determined by a computer file. So your regular 3D printer, you have a few things to consider. What kind of plastic you want to use, maybe the color of that plastic, And of course, the 3D shape of what you want to make. Bioengineers working with bioprinters have kind of similar considerations, but with far more options. So this is my PhD student, Mina. Hi, how are you? So this is the 3D printer. This is the GSIM Bioscaffolder 3.1. So we got this in 2017. And as you can see, it has four axis heads. We're using the middle one right now for soft gel extrusion. First, instead of plastic, they will use something that is compatible with being inside a person. And what they choose to use depends on what the aim of what they are printing is. So we use biomaterials, which means that there are materials that are compatible with living cells and living tissue. And 
they biodegrade. So for example, when you're developing an implant, if she's making this bone regeneration scaffold, you want to be able to implant them and then you want them to degrade over time. You don't want them to be a permanent fixture. And so you're safely delivering those cells that you've encapsulated or seated on top of your scaffold and basically trying to regenerate tissue for whatever injury or um, 3D model tissue that you're trying to build. The term JD uses is bioink. And you can have bioink that tends to be firmer, more like plastic, or ones that are softer and squishier and better vehicles for cells. Again, what you use depends on what you were trying to do. Typically with the synthetic biocompatible polymers, they are mechanically strong and they last longer. So that's preferential for some you know, types of tissues, for example, like bone. Other types of tissues are soft tissues where, where you may want biocompatible natural polymer, um, water-loving systems such as the hydrogels. And more importantly, the cells are happy to be um, within these encapsulated um, systems so that we can extrude them, create, put them in the shape that we want, and then ideally be able to implant them back into the patient. You heard JD mention cells there. This is the second consideration. So instead of, you know, choosing the colour of the plastic, bioengineers can choose what they want to add into their bioink or attach to it afterwards. So generally there are two different types of materials you can use for um, this type of tissue construction. You can use a material that you can seed cells onto or you can use a material where cells are encapsulated within. And so um, the ones where the living cells are encapsulated within are referred to as hydrogels. And so the hydro refers to high water content. So these high water content hydrogels are made up of polymers that degrade, biodegrade, or bioabsorb naturally and mimic physiological tissue. So we ourselves are made up of lots of water. So the cells are happy in these hydrogel bioink systems. So cells are one option for fancy add-ons to your bioink. And the potential here is that you could use the patient's own cells by taking some of their stem cells and growing them up. And another option is to put protection against bacteria. For example, if you're aiming at wound healing. Or you could add molecules that will encourage the bone cells in the body to grow, say, if you were trying to help mend a broken bone. Of course, the third consideration is the structure. And here, the 3D bioprinter that they use provides a couple of options of how things can be built. So this type of 3D printing is um, a pneumatic pressure extrusion. So we have compressed air in a tank, and we have pressurized control through various valves. So we can control the rate at which the bioink is extruded. And it's in combination with scaffolding design software so we can create the microarchitecture and structure that we want to best replicate the tissue of interest. The structure that JD is trying to replicate at the moment is the complexity of blood vessels or vascularization. It's a key step, she says, in achieving one massive overarching goal. So the reason why vascularization is so important 
is that the limiting component to create 3D bioprinted organs. So instead of being on a wait list, if you were in a car accident and you need a new liver, for example, some people wait for years and may never get a replacement liver. And so the idea is to harvest your own cells, grow them, put them into a biolink, reconstruct the architecture to rebuild your personalized liver, and then implant it back into you. How amazing would that be? But breaking this challenge into bite-sized chunks, JD is starting with building those blood vessels and developing a wound dressing. So as a part of that, as a step towards that, I started to think simply in terms of skin. And so to create a living dressing, which was designed using core shell 3D bioprinting technology, so one of the axes that you can see has the one closest to you has two ink cartridge holders. And so there's a component at the end where they both feed into. And so I can put a core bioink with endothelial cells, which make vessels. And then the shell ink that surrounds that core strand will contain mesenchymal stem cells which can specialize into different cell types, like connective tissue cell types. And then I can print a scaffold coaxially. And then I've also designed the core bioink to degrade more quickly than the shell so that I could create these hollow tube microarchitectures where I've deposited these endothelial cells and I'm kind of directing them to create the vasculature that we want. So this is a first step in terms of creating a living dressing, for example, to treat non-healing wounds such as diabetic foot ulcers where people have lost their regenerative capability. If you're able to harvest cells for them, put them in this construct and apply it, we would not only be able to heal the wounds, but we would be replacing that tissue with functioning tissue and not just scar tissue. Working away in the lab with the bioprinter when I visited is Mina Rajabi, a PhD student who has been researching how to make a biodegradable scaffold that could help broken bones heal. The idea is that generally bone has a limited capacity of regeneration, especially at larger uh, size. So we use the synthetic scaffold to help the regeneration of bone for the fractures that can be caused by trauma, accidents, or even tumor resections. And so something that you're thinking really hard about is just getting that timing right. So you can use the 3D bioprinted scaffold to help the bone knit together, but that then degrades just at the right time. Yes, because uh, the problem with the metal scaffolds is that the patient has to go through several surgeries and it's going to be either permanent in the body which has other immune rejection problems but with these ones it's just helping the natural bone to regenerate without causing the other problems. Very cool so instead of using like metal pins when you're trying to fix bones you would be putting in your 3D bioprinted scaffold which would help the bones knit together 
and then naturally degrade at yeah, the right time. Yeah, exactly. Are you also putting some bone stem cells in the hydrogel? Is that part of it to, to help improve that bone healing? In my case, uh, I cultured the cells on top of my 3D printed scaffold after 3D printing. But I use chitooligosaccharide in my formulation, which this one helps uh, osteogenesis of the stem cells after uh, 3D printing. So these chitooligosaccharides that Mina mentions prompt bone cells to grow more bone, a process called osteogenesis, giving a helping hand to the healing. With her scaffolds, Mina has been doing a lot of different tests to make sure that they are fit for purpose. The first part is just the physical and if it's stable at body temperature and physiological body liquid. And the next part is the biological performance of the scaffolds. And why bioengineering? How did you get to here? My background is polymer engineering, which was more related to material science, but I always had this um, eager to help people and be in the medical science. So I found bioengineering as a bridge between the engineering and biology, so it satisfied my desire. (laughs) These characterization tests show good results, Mina tells me, but it is still early days as it is for JD's wound dressing. So far, they have tested it on cuts in cells in a dish. We can grow skin cells in a tissue culture dish and we can wound them, which is basically making a big scratch into the dish. And then we can measure uh, the rate of wound closure and so um, how quickly that wound closes. And then we found in the presence of our living dressing there was a significant increase in wound rate, closure and healing. But soon, well, depending on the outcome of a grant she has submitted, JD hopes to work with collaborators to test this wound dressing in a mouse model. She is also working on other projects. What she has developed for the wound dressing might be able to help with burn injuries, and she is helping other researchers by building 3D cancer models for drug discovery. When I ask her about when we might expect 3D printed organs, it's a typical scientist answer for this kind of big advancement question. We don't know, there are a lot of challenges to overcome, but she hopes that we will see them within decades. In the meantime, JD is excited to contribute and be working towards this big goal that has the potential to help a lot of people. Thanks to Dr. J.D. Cabral and Mina Rajabi in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Otago. Now, University of Canterbury student Francis Pook won a national award for developing a simpler tracheostomy kit, which halves the time it takes to carry out the procedure in an emergency situation. Katie Gossett caught up with him and the wider team behind this new design. It's one of those medical procedures that most of us know about. We see it performed in the movies or on TV. Take this episode from the classic show MASH, set during the Korean War. Come in, help me. Tell me the clearance through. 
Here, Father Mulcahy finds himself out amongst the action. Bombs are falling, and he's helping to bring back a wounded soldier who can't breathe. And so, armed only with his pocket knife and the tube from his eyedropper, he performs an emergency tracheostomy, with doctors talking him through the procedure over the phone. Make an incision between the rings of tissue and then stick the tube in the hole you made. The man will be breathing through that tube. Now work fast. Now here in peacetime New Zealand, emergency tracheostomies aren't that common. Probably less than once every five years in a you know large tertiary centre. And that really is where you've got a fairly dire situation with a patient who has got a severely compromised airway and needs urgent access where it's not accessible through the usual means. That's Jeff Shaw. He's an intensive care specialist at the Canterbury District Health Board. And there are elective tracheostomies, usually about 40 a year, that happen in intensive care to make patients more comfortable when they're on a ventilator or if they have a neurological condition. But when it's an emergency situation, the pressure's on. People have, many years ago, tried to invent various devices to improve the safety in inexperienced hands. When you're doing this under the worst possible conditions, that's when someone is going blue and the adrenaline's running. But no one has succeeded in doing this safely. The result has been that they have a high likelihood of failure or more likely, in fact, they have ended up in the wrong place. And that can be really serious. So if you put a tracheostomy tube into the soft tissues of someone's neck or you miss the trachea completely and it goes into the chest, for example, that has dire consequences. Part of the problem is that the current kit has a number of different components and a whole lot of steps to follow. And of course, with multiple steps, you're more prone to error and making simple mistakes. And so, like others before him, Jeff started thinking, well, maybe there's a better way of doing this. And that's where University of Canterbury mechanical engineering student Francis Pook comes in. Right, so Jeff Shaw was actually the project client for my Thunia project, and he came to me with this problem. His goal was to make a simplified medical kit so that you can perform this procedure using less components, taking less time, and lowering the complication risk. It was an intriguing prospect for Francis because he'd originally dabbled with the idea of studying medicine himself. And so, with the help of Jeff Shaw and his engineering supervisor, distinguished professor Jeff Chase, he's managed to find a way to combine two disciplines. I thought it was a very interesting problem. And I think it's quite cool, you know, applying the sort of design approaches that we're taught at university to a medical problem and sort of boiling the, the problem down to its core elements. What is actually needed to perform this operation is different ways we can do it. So how is the kit different and how do you reduce down the number of parts? Well, there is still a tracheostomy tube as opposed to someone's eyedropper tube, but the way it's inserted has changed, so the new design means it's been combined with a dilator. Francis explains. The dilator is like a plastic sort of tapered horn-shaped object which the current way of doing it uses to sort of enlarge the hole into the trachea so you can actually place the tracheostomy tube. And so dilating the hole and placing the tube are currently two separate steps. And so this new design combines the the tube inside of the dilator so you can do both those steps at the same time. And so all of these dilator pieces connect together and assemble around the tracheostomy tube, locking together. And then once you want to remove the pieces, they can be removed individually around the tube. In a video, the team demonstrates the new device and the existing kit side by side. The new design manages to halve the time it takes to carry out the tracheostomy. 
Still, it's fair to say that there was a bit of toing and froing as they nutted out that final design, but Francis enjoyed the opportunity to work alongside a clinician like Jeff Shaw. I mean, it's not often you'd be able to work with someone who has all this information. And so, yes, it can be frustrating, you know, when you feel like you're so close, but there's always improvements that can be made. But I think, you know, 3D printing, like how easy that is, comes into this because it, it doesn't take me much time to, you know, go back and revise the design and print some new pieces and then present a new design to Jeff for the next couple of days. Sort of quite interesting to see how Jeff views the problem and then I'll present him with, you know, my ideas. And it's quite cool coming up with some sort of compromise between the two that I think it, you know, is quite an innovative solution in the end. So there is a bit of a backstory here. This is not the first time that Jeff Shaw has looked to the world of engineering to help with medical matters. In fact, some years ago, he fired off an email to the University of Canterbury looking for a mathematical solution to an issue he was having in the intensive care unit. Yeah, I came up with some crazy notion to solve a problem. And it ended up in the inbox of the other Jeff, engineering professor Jeff Chase, who viewed the problem slightly differently. He had a pretty interesting idea and he thought he could use some math to do something. And so he called a meeting. Jeff's description of this will then follow that myself and a mathematician discussed the problem with him in a room, wrote some equations on a board, then grunted, nodded at each other that, yeah, that seems about right. And then as you do after a good first meeting. And decided we should all go off and have beers. Yes, we did go off and have a beer. Because although they may not have realised it at the time, it would be the start of a long and successful working relationship. Probably the uh, simplest and shortest way to put that is that Jeff Shaw is a doctor who probably should have been an engineer, and I'm an engineer who very possibly should have been a doctor. So there's a lot of crossover interest. That first so-called crazy notion was to do with how to quantify and manage agitation in intensive care patients. And it wasn't long before Jeff Shaw heard from his engineering counterpart. About three weeks later, Jeff rang me up and he said, listen, I think I've got a solution to this problem. I thought, oh, good, right, we'll do a little study or whatever. He said, yeah, I've got a PhD student. He's one of the brightest we've ever had. And I think we can turn this into a PhD I just about fell over when I heard that. All I could think about is, oh my God, I don't want to destroy a student's career on a whim. To which Jeff said something which I think is very profound. He said it's better to have 5% of something which is new and really useful than to add about 0.01% of something that's already known. It opened his eyes to just what engineering could achieve in the medical arena. So that forever has changed my approach to how I sedate patients, and that was the insight by engineering mathematics and modelling, and I would never have got there had I not actually done this work. Incidentally, the PhD student's career wasn't ruined either. He ended up winning the title of McDiamond Institute Young Researcher of the Year, and the partnership of Jeff and Jeff was launched. They've since collaborated on a number of projects, and this latest one, the tracheostomy kit, has also earned accolades for Francis Pook. Jeff and other lead supervisor, Jennifer, nominated me for this student engineering award, which is run by Engineering New Zealand. And so I was very lucky to to get through to the final round of that and ended up winning, which is absolutely fantastic. And it was a real honour to win that award because I know there's so many fantastic final year projects going on, not just in UC, but around New Zealand. So yeah, I was a very... Very happy to have won that award. 
Francis is now working on a PhD and hopes to carry on with bioengineering. We're sort of now looking at more medical device design and the low-cost design of an insulin pump. So you know, I'm really interested in the whole impact that you can have in the bioengineering field with the right design approach and it's a really interesting area of research. And there's a bigger picture to consider. Chief Chase believes these sorts of bioengineered solutions will become more and more important as populations age and health budgets remain tight. If you look at everything surrounding healthcare and the economics of healthcare today, it's all getting tighter, harder. You see increasing groups considering strike action, and it's because they're being asked to run harder and harder. 21 years ago, the ICU was smaller, and it was rarely much, much more than half full. Today, the ICU is a little bit larger, and it's rarely less than 80% full. And that's just demographics, nothing you can do to, to change that. But what you can do is start thinking about medical problems in a different way. One of the things we say is that we don't need better medicine. We need to be able to do medicine better. The real problem in uh, healthcare budgets and healthcare delivery is the inability to deliver more for as much as required for the money that's available. Where we've stepped in, the intensive care unit is probably one of the single highest cost areas of medicine in terms of cost per day. As populations age, the demand for it is increasing. All those things add up. But it's also one of the areas that has the most technology and the most measurements. And so it lends itself to an engineered or automated approach. If you were to walk into an ICU and just watch one bedside and the nurse around it, what you pick up on is that they never stop moving. Engineering offers a means to start automating measurable chunks of that process to allow them more time to think about the patient and what needs to be done, as well as to perhaps be able to provide more care to more patients. Jeff Chase believes the best solutions to these kind of problems come when people from different disciplines pool their knowledge. And the real magic arises when I leave engineering behind and take on some medicine and Jeff leaves some medicine behind and takes on engineering. And you get that third solution that's the combination of that. It's not about so much uh, improving care, making an iteration, doing something a little bit better. It's about reinventing the way that you do it, which is actually quite a much bigger step forward. As for the tracheostomy kit, it's still in its very early stages, but it could one day be used by clinicians across the country. It's a tantalising thought that this device, if we could get it into clinical practice and get confidence around it, it might be useful in that emergency situation because it's got all the safety characteristics that the device that we use in an elective situation has, but it is much faster and easier to deploy. So you put those combinations together, then you might be able to have a device, which I believe for the first time will allow anybody who has been given some basic training to access someone's airway in an emergency. And it could even be of interest further afield in military or paramedic situations. If you go outside of a fairly quiet and peaceful little part of the world like New Zealand into other situations where you've got just increased population density, so you're going to get more people coming through the door, 
or where there is a lot of trauma, such as in a, a war situation, then these sorts of devices, I think, would have a really good role, potentially. Thanks to Katie and to the University of Canterbury researchers she spoke to, Student Engineer of the Year, Francis Pook, and Professor Jeff Chase, as well as Intensive Care Specialist, Dr. Jeff Shaw. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is executive producer. Keep up to date with new Our Changing Worlds episodes by following the show. You can do this for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for some photos and video related to this episode. You can also sign up to our newsletter there, and you can access the back catalogue of hundreds of Our Changing World episodes. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. There are loads of other great podcasts on RNZ to explore. Click on the podcast and series tab to have a look. For example, in the Healthier Hoax series, Stacey Morrison looks at food and fitness trends to discover what's good for you and what's gobbledygook. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. 